So <clears throat> if you have your copy of Scripture open, I encourage you to keep it open before you as we look at some of the uh, section headings of the chapters in this uh, portion of the book of Joshua. Now these section headings above the chapters and above certain paragraphs we know are not inspired, but they are helpful in helping us understand the context of what we're reading. So there in Joshua chapter 13, we see that uh, Joshua 13 reminds us about how the tribes of Reuben and Gad, along with the half-tribe of Manasseh, how they received land east of the Jordan River under Moses' leadership. And then chapter 14 and following uh, describes how the land west of the Jordan River was uh, parceled out among the remaining families and tribes. We know that all the tribes received an inheritance of land, all the tribes except Levi, because we know that the Lord was their inheritance. The Levites instead were given certain cities within uh, the uh, tribes' territories. And so, as you have your Bibles open, uh, notice, for example, the heading above chapter 15 of this section of Joshua. Uh, the ESV, the section heading is, The Allotment for Judah. This is the allotment for the tribe of Judah. And, and the description that follows is very detailed. It describes the boundary markers of the land given to the tribe of Judah. And I'll read just a few verses to give us a sample of how these chapters read. Beginning at verse 1. Uh, the allotment for the tribe of the people of Judah, according to their clans, reached southward to the boundary of Edom, to the wilderness of Zin, at the farthest south. And their south boundary ran from the end of the Salt Sea, from the bay that faces southward. It goes out southward of the ascent of ak Rabim, passes along to Zin, and goes up south of Kadesh Barnea, along by Hezron, up to Adar, turns about to Karka, passes along to Asmon, goes out by the brook of Egypt and comes to its end at the sea. Very detailed boundary markers. And then chapter 16, you'll notice the heading, the allotment for the tribes of Ephraim and Manasseh. Chapter 18, the inheritance for the tribes of Benjamin and for Simeon, and so on. Now, a section like this of scripture, Joshua chapters 13, through 21 might seem boring to us at first. Now, this is one of those sections which, if uh, you're on a Bible reading schedule, usually trying to finish the Bible in a year, this can be the section that's really difficult to uh, get through. Right? The question is, what is the deal with so much detail about the inheritance of each of these tribes? Well, while this section of scripture might seem a bit tedious uh, to us, we need to see that each line is actually evidence of how God fulfilled his covenant with Abraham, a covenant that was made centuries earlier. On several occasions, we know that God promised Abraham that he would bless Abraham with a big family and with land. We uh, read first about it in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 4. God, we read, said to Abram, 
Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. This promise was repeated again in Genesis chapter 13, verses 14 through 17. This promise now is repeated, and the land promise is made very clear to Abraham. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, Lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land that you see, I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring will also be counted. Arise, walk throughout the length and breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. This is the promise God made to Abraham. And these promises, we know, were repeated again in Genesis 15, but in that passage specifically, uh, God sealed the covenant that he made with Abraham in blood, assuring him that he would graciously grant Abraham a big family and land. And so now we fast forward uh, centuries later uh, to our text for this morning. And, and we read on each line of Joshua chapters 13 through 21 how God fulfilled his covenant with Abraham. Because uh, the people of the tribes of Israel were descendants of Abraham. They were Abraham's family. They were from his bloodline. And the promised land that they were inheriting was the land that God had given them because God fought for his people. In fact, uh, this whole section of Joshua, chapters 13 through 21, ends with this beautiful summary statement. We read at the end of chapter 21, not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. So you see, loved ones, this section is a historical document that shows in very great detail how God kept his word, how God fulfilled his promises. It details how our faithful God always follow through, follows through with what he says. There are uh, three lessons that I want us to consider this morning from Joshua chapters uh, 13 through 21. In these chapters of Joshua, we uh, first learn the blessing of holy following the Lord. We read for our first reading from Joshua chapter 14, verses 6 through 15, which uh, describes Caleb's inheritance. And uh, this is significant because we know that Caleb and Joshua were the only two people among the 12 spies that were sent into Canaan uh, who believed the promise of God. You might remember from uh, your Bible reading the story about how Israel sent spies into Canaan. We've referred to this event in our series in the book of Joshua. It was a reconnaissance mission. The uh, purpose of the mission was to spy out the promised land before Israel went in to conquer the land. And the purpose was to see whether the uh, Canaanites were strong or weak, uh, whether they were few or many, 
purpose was to scope out their cities and, and to see their uh, resources before they went in to take the land. And when the spies uh, came back, Joshua and Caleb being among them, after they came back, after 40 days, the majority of them, 10 of them, had a bad report that they gave to the people of Israel. They said the land is amazing. It flows with milk and honey. It has abundant natural resources. It has everything that we could have ever uh, dreamed of. Uh, but we won't be able to take the land. Uh, in fact, the people there are giants. We seemed as small and insignificant as grasshoppers compared to them. And so we are not able to go against the people living there because they are stronger than we are. We won't stand a chance. That was the majority report. Now the problem with this majority report was that this led all the rest of Israel to begin grumbling against God. The people began to grumble and they said, would that we had died in the land of Egypt or would that we had died in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and children will become a prey. And they said to one another, let us choose a leader to go back to Egypt. But among those spies, there were two who trusted in the Lord, Joshua and Caleb, and they had a different opinion. Uh, listen to their report and the faith that they had in the Lord to fulfill his promises to his people. They said... In Numbers chapter 14, beginning of verse 6, they address the congregation, the land which we pass through to spy it out is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into this land and he will give it to us. It's a land flowing with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord and do not fear the people of the land for they are bred for us. Their protection is removed from them and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. Now, did you hear their faithful response? As Joshua and Caleb trusted in the Lord and in his promise. We read that because of their faith, Joshua and Caleb were the only two people of that first generation of Israel to enter the promised land. All the others perished in the wilderness. So what we see with Joshua and Caleb in their lives is we see not just a temporary zeal for the Lord, you know, a temporary energetic faith, but as we now fast forward to our passage this morning in Joshua, we see that their faith endured throughout their lifetimes. You know, it would have been one thing for them to stand for the Lord in that moment, giving a good report, and then weakening in their resolve later in life, but instead we see that both Joshua and Caleb remained strong in their faith. They persevered to the end. And what we learn is that such faith, a faith that endures loved ones, will be rewarded by God. Because Joshua and Caleb received an inheritance in the promised land. We read in Joshua chapter 14, verses 13 through 14, that Joshua blessed him, blessed Caleb, and he gave Hebron to Caleb for an inheritance. <clears throat> Therefore, Hebron became the inheritance of Caleb to this day because he wholly followed the Lord. 
the God of Israel. And then later in Joshua chapter 19, we read about the inheritance that Joshua himself received. When they had finished distributing the several territories of the land as inheritances, the people of Israel gave an inheritance among them to Joshua. By command of the Lord, they gave him the city that he asked, Timnath Sarah, in the hill country of Ephraim. And he rebuilt the city and settled in it. Loved ones, what we learn here is that there is a blessing in holy following the Lord, in giving our lives to the Lord in daily obedience for a lifetime, a lifelong enduring faith. There is blessing to be found. And in these chapters of Joshua, God also teaches us about, secondly, the danger of not following his commands fully, the danger of not following his commands fully. That's the second point in the sermon outline. Because there are indicators in these uh, chapters about how some of the tribes failed to uh, completely conquer the areas where they settled. Um, there's actually a summary statement about this in Joshua chapter 13. If you notice in verse 13, it reads, uh, Yet the people of Israel did not drive out the Geshurites or the Makathites. But Geshur and Makath dwell in the midst of Israel to this day. Now that should read as a red flag for us as we read our Bibles. And then we have specific examples of which tribes failed to completely conquer the territories. In Joshua chapter 16, verse 10, we read about the tribes of Ephraim and, and Manasseh that they did not drive out the Canaanites who lived in Gezer. So the Canaanites have lived in the midst of Ephraim to this day, but have been made to do forced labor. And then again, Joshua 17, verses 12 through 13. Yet the people of Manasseh could not take possession of those cities, but the Canaanites persisted in dwelling in the land. Now, when the people of Israel grew strong, they put the Canaanites to forced labor, but did not utterly drive them out. More red flags. What's the big deal? Why is it so bad that Israel allowed some of the Canaanites to remain in the land? The problem was that in doing so, uh, Israel was living in direct disobedience to the Lord. One of the truths that we've been learning in our series through Joshua is that uh, God used Israel as a means of bringing judgment upon the Canaanites. That uh, God had, had given those living in Canaan centuries to repent of their sin and to turn to him in faith. And there were among the Canaanites some who turned in faith, like Rahab the prostitute and her household. But for those who didn't, God's judgment fell upon them. And so when Israel failed to obey God's command to utterly drive out the Canaanites, they were living in direct disobedience to what God had commanded them. The promised land was supposed to be Canaanite-free. It was supposed to be pagan-free. It was to be God's holy place where God's holy people lived in true worship of him. And the goal was then that that holiness would spread out to the rest of the world as God was truly 
worshipped in Israel. But you might say, you know, it, it's not all that bad. It seems like, like Israel managed to drive out most of the Canaanites, and, and only a few Canaanites remained after the conquest. So what's the big deal? Well, the big deal is that the Canaanites who remained in the Promised Land, the few that did, they exerted an influence over Israel, an influence that led Israel over the years toward idolatry, toward worshiping the Canaanite gods, turning their hearts away from the God of Israel and to the idols of the Canaanites. And God actually warned his people about the strong influence that the pagan religions would have upon them, but Israel did not obey. And this disobedience led to Israel and Israel's spiritual disaster. And we can see how this played out actually in, in the next book of the Bible, in the book of Judges. Uh, if you turn in your copy of Scripture, just a few pages to Judges chapter 1. Judges chapter 1, and if you have an ESV version of Scripture, your Bible probably has a heading above verse 27 that reads something like, a failure to complete the conquest. And then you'll notice that the failures are listed. Verse 27 of Judges chapter 1, Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants. Verse 29, Ephraim did not drive out the Canaanites. Verse 30, Zebulun did not drive out the inhabitants, and so on and so forth. And all of this led to the spiritual disaster that we read about in Judges chapter 2, beginning at verse 11. We read, The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods, among them the gods of the peoples who were around them, the people who persisted to live in Canaan, the people whom Israel allowed to live in Canaan. And Israel bowed down to them, and they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them, and he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm, as the Lord had warned, and as the Lord had sworn to them, and they were in terrible distress. See, friends, we learn here about the danger of partial obedience, of only obeying the Lord to a certain point, but not obeying him fully or completely. You know, Israel, we read, conquered some of the land, but not all of it as the Lord had commanded his people. And because of that, they experienced spiritual disaster. Loved ones, we should never think that a little sin is okay. Uh, even small sins left unchecked, small sins that we know result from partial obedience, have the power to grow and to overtake us in our 
spiritual lives. You know, a small uh, sinful habit can lead to an addiction that can lead to ruin. A, a seemingly harmless sin, like a cherishing lust in our hearts, can lead to spiritual disaster. Most devastating sins, they start small. They begin with only partial obedience, and they give birth to death. We see this danger so vividly in the relationship between Cain and Abel. They were the first two sons of Adam and Eve. And we read in Genesis chapter 4 that uh, both of these brothers uh, brought an offering to the Lord in worship. They're referred to even in Hebrews 11, which was our second reading this morning. We read there in Genesis chapter 4 that when these brothers brought their offerings, worship to the Lord, the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. The Lord accepted Abel's offering, but not Cain's. Well, what was the problem with Cain's offering? Well, the problem, we know, was that his heart was not right with God. See, the problem was not with what he brought, but the problem was in how he brought it. He lacked true faith as he came before the Lord in worship. And we see that Cain's lack of true faith, we see it revealed in how he responded to the Lord's rejection. In Genesis chapter 4, beginning of verse 5, we read, So Cain was very angry. And his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? And why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Loved ones, did you hear that, that warning? As God was warning Cain about the anger in his heart, warning him that, that it was sinful and that if he didn't fight against it, that sin would fester and grow and ultimately overtake him. You know that sadly, Cain did not obey the voice of the Lord, did not obey the Lord's warning. We continue reading in Genesis chapter 4 that Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. See how a seemingly small sin left unchecked, a seemingly small sin that wasn't given over to the Lord in, in repentance, a sin of anger and resentment in the heart led to murder. Loved ones, we need to live a life of daily repentance. This is why the Lord calls us to mortify all sin. We are called by the Lord to seek to bring every area of our lives to conform with his word. And lastly, in these chapters in Joshua, we learn the joy of our promised inheritance. The joy of our promised inheritance because we read here about how the land was portioned out to the families and to the tribes of Israel. And as we read about these very detailed ways in which the boundary markers were set and how each tribe received a portion of the inheritance. And what we are learning is we're learning about the inheritance that will be ours in glory. The inheritance that will be ours in glory, loved ones. 
As one writer notes, the gospel promises us an inheritance, uh, not in the dust of Palestine, but in the heavenly kingdom of God, the new heaven and the new earth, the land we will live in forever when Jesus returns. These chapters in the book of Joshua give us a preview of what it will be like when our greater Joshua, Jesus, leads us into the eternal promised land. Because, loved ones, the Bible teaches us that the world as it currently is, the world as it currently is groaning under sin, is not our home. In this, in this world, we live as Christians, and we live as Christians in exile. We are living in this place, but we are longing for our true home. We are strangers and, and exiles here. In his book, uh, Setting Our Sights on Heaven, the author named Paul Wolf, he really helps us uh, clarify what the Bible means by this. He says that, in a sense, this planet is our home. This is our Father's world, as we often sing at grace. God made this planet to be the habitation of the, the human race, and the ultimate aim of God's redeeming work, therefore, is not to uh, remove us from it, but to renew it, to free it from its now groaning under sin. And so when we say that uh, this world is on our, not our home, what we mean is that the earth is we find it now. The, the earth in all creation as it currently is in this present evil age is not our home. As Christians, we live in a very different way from this present evil age. We don't live in open rebellion against God as unbelievers do. Uh, we're not like those who live in hopelessness and alienation from God because we know the Lord. And so here in this world, on this earth, as we find it now, we so often feel out of step with the current culture, don't we? We feel out of place. We believe differently. We think differently. We live differently. We are aliens and strangers in a foreign land. And loved ones, this is why even Abraham, even Abraham so many centuries ago, having received the land promise from God that he was going to inherit a certain place on the earth, God was going to give to him. Even Abraham was looking past that place to something greater that was yet to come. The writer of Hebrews explains Abraham's hope in Hebrews chapter 11, that by faith he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. See, the faith that we see in Abraham's life caused him to have this beautiful, eternal perspective. Abraham lived in the land of promise. He buried his wife, Sarah, there. But even as he did that, he was looking forward to the city to come. He lived in Canaan, but not permanently. He lived as a pilgrim. Why? Because he knew that the land of promise was simply a pointer to a future, more solid reality. See, for Abraham, that land of promise was like a sacrament, a sacrament that was tangible, that was physical, 
but that pointed to a greater spiritual, eternal reality. We read in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 10, he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Abraham was looking forward to the new heaven and the new earth, to the city of God, a city that has foundations. Our world, loved ones, as it is now, is corrupted by sin. We know that life is so frail, so fleeting, as each of us is struggling in some way with illness, with heartache, with hardship. But we read in Scripture that there is a city to come with foundations, a city that is unchangeable, and there will be no sin there. There will be no heartache there. It will be the new Jerusalem. It's the celestial city that's described for us in Revelation chapter 21, beginning of verse 1. The Apostle John describes it and says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Loved ones, this is the heavenly city that awaits all those who trust in Christ by faith. This will be our inheritance. Our faith will soon give way to sight. We will be with Christ in the place that he is now preparing for us. We will look upon him face to face. We will speak to him as one speaks to a friend. And there in that place, we will experience eternal, lasting joys in his presence. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, you uh, teach us that uh, while the grass withers and the flowers fall, your word endures forever. And so we ask you to take the word that we just heard preached and to write it upon our hearts and minds. Grant us, we pray, a desire to wholly obey you in all things and to never be satisfied with partial obedience. We thank you for the promise we have of eternal life with Christ in the renewed heaven and earth. May your word be written upon our hearts that it may last and bear fruit that will last. For Jesus' sake we pray.